No matter what kind of childhood we've had, nobody escapes trauma while growing up. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit shows. Shit show nation. I haven't said that in a while. I know you're all hoping that I wasn't going to say it anymore. (laughs) For any new listeners, my name is Andrea. I am a total and complete shit show. I am a recovering alcoholic. I am an adult child of an alcoholic and dysfunctional family. I started this podcast almost three years ago, guys. We're coming up on three years in my closet on the floor next to my cat's litter box after years and years of toxic, painful relationships and subsequent years of healing from my childhood, as well as trying to figure out why the hell I was put on this earth, which led me to launching this damn podcast. So this is where we talk about what the hell to do when you realize that your childhood fucked you up a lot more than you thought it did. Yes, we say fuck here. You've been warned and welcome aboard this hot mess of a ship. So today we are diving deep with Kenny Weiss. So Kenny is a coach, a YouTuber, a former professional athlete, a fellow recovering shit show. I recently came across him on Twitter on X. I came across some of his tweets and then on some of his videos. And I don't know why I'm just coming across him now because his shit is good and he's been putting good shit out there for some time. So he is also the author of two books. His first book is called Your Journey to Success, How to Accept the Answers You Discover Along the Way, and then his most recent book, which I am currently reading, Your Journey to Being Yourself, How to Overcome the Worst Day Cycle and Reclaim Your Authentic Self with Emotional Authenticity. So super pumped for you guys to hear this conversation. We had natural chemistry from the get-go. This conversation is the perfect mixture of vulnerable personal stories, insights into personal healing, practical tools and suggestions, and of course, plenty of shit show banter. So let's get the damn show on the road. But first, let's talk about why you, yes, you need to damn the join shit show. This is my online support community that of course you know about, that of course you have been meaning to join, wanting to join, and perhaps you're going to do that today. How about we damn the joint shit show today? I have four weekly Zoom support groups. You can see in the show notes the days and times of those. This is where you have access to 24-hour chat, discussion boards, a support system at your damn fingertips. Now, this is a group of people who are committed to doing this hard work to heal. And I want to share two quotes that people have said over the past week that I think illustrate this. So one is from Kelly, and she's just said in a group, you know, somebody shared that they are so angry, you know, that they they have to do this work. And so am I, but God, am I so grateful that I 
want to do this work, that I'm willing to do this work. And I just thought that was so beautiful. And then another thing that was said today by Carly, who just recently joined the community, she goes, you know, I love ACA meetings, but Andrea, I just want to tell you that your your groups really take it to the next level. I feel comfortable sharing in ACA meetings, but I got to be honest, I get a little bit nervous when I share in your groups because I'm taking it to another level of, of vulnerability and authenticity. So this is the place for you if you are looking for a group of people who will understand you, will see you, will hear you, will get you, will love you, will accept you, will laugh with you, will say fuck with you, all of the things. So damn the Join Shit Show. See the link in the show notes for uh, the link to join. Next, give me a follow on the Insta, on the TikTok, at Adult Child Pod. And last but not least, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. This really does help in reaching more listeners, the more reviews, the more that Apple and Spotify push this out to potential listeners So don't be the person that puts their head on the pillow at the end of the night that feels guilty because you didn't give me a review so that suffering adult child out there does not get to find the podcast. Thank you. Love you all. All right, y'all. You're in for a damn treat. We have Kenny Weiss. Are you ready to get vulnerable? Love to. That's the only place to live as far as I'm concerned. I agree. Are you familiar with the term adult child? Well, yeah. As far as it sounds like you may have a certain, you know, parameters around what that means or what they Well, been. adult children of alcoholic and dysfunctional families. Oh, yeah. I, that's my childhood. That's so. you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm a third. So basically middle child became an alcoholic myself. And yeah. How long have you been sober? Let's see. I quit at 21 or 22, sober like 20 years and you know, decided to try it again for two or three years. And I lose track. I think I'm at 12 or 13 years. I just, once I don't want to drink, I just don't want to, I just don't pay attention to it. Like I'll sniff drinks because I'm like, oh, I'd love them. But as soon as I sniff it, I see the consequences and go, no, thank you. Give it the old sniff test. (laughs) Yeah, I just, well, I, you know, there's sometimes where, you know, having a margarita or something's like, God, that just sounds good. But I immediately see consequences. I'm no longer in denial. And self-deception on, you know, thinking this is good for me. But, you know, I wish I, I, I marvel. I say to people, I have one drink and I literally, I'm like, how do you do that? Not how do you do that? Why would you want to do that? Exactly. <laughs> like, why aren't What's you up all night? Like, why wouldn't you, you know, like this is a three-day party. If you're going to have one, it's a three-day party. That's the point of drinking. I agree. I just, so I, I'm fascinated by people who, don't see the world that way. I know. Or like the people when you leave the restaurant and they leave half the glass of wine sitting on the table. They're like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> yeah. In the old days, I would have drank it all on the way out the door. So I'm curious about your experience of relapse. Like what led up to that? And can you remember after 20 years, can you remember like having that first drink? And because for me, I feel like I would, so I had 15 years in September. I got sober at 19. I feel like I would feel immediately like so much fucking guilt and shame that I would just have to start drinking around the clock immediately to deal with that. I think (laughs) at least in my experience, the guilt Uh and shame is built up so much that you don't feel it. I was with my second wife and we used to talk about, you know, 
what I was like when I was younger and a drinker. And she would say a lot, God, I, I wonder what he was like. And so we were, this is a funny story. We're sitting at a strip club and I look at her and I go, I wonder if she'd like me again if I started drinking. So instead of dealing with, wait a minute, I can sense that there's a detachment in our relationship. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean. The guilt and shame is so high already. You've been giving yourself away, going against your morals and values, needs and wants, not asking for your needs and wants. You've fallen so low that you're no longer present. You're mm -hmm. already drunk. You know what I mean? And so I had that thought. I stood up. I walked to the bar and ordered a double white Russian. Came back. And I think that night it was 13, 15 drinks later. And didn't, you know, didn't throw up or, you know, the, the high was a little bit different because it hadn't been in my system for so long, but you know, they're not lying. Your alcoholism is doing pushups while you're sober because I drank a lot more the second time than I ever did the first time. I'm sure. So interesting. Yeah. You having the white Russian, it reminds me of the story in the big book about the guy who puts the shot of whiskey in his glass of milk. Have you read that story? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. I liked all the girl drinks. I'm I'm a sugar addict. I needed I didn't drink the whiskeys and all that or beer. Can't stand. I I was like, you know, Long Island iced teas, margaritas, vodka, and something. But you know, all the sweet stuff. Yeah, all that was. Yeah. Okay. So this is typically where I like to start with people. When was the moment that you realized that your childhood was a lot more fucked up than you initially thought? Or that it fucked you up a lot more than you initially thought? Uh, that would be during the process of my first divorce when I started seeing, he's now my best friend, Mike Pinkston. You know, we're, we talk every week. We counsel each other, mentor each other now because I've learned so much from him. And we just became very close. And when was this? I would have been 38 or 39. So 28. Okay about 20 years ago. Okay. And, you know, the first day I went to see him, I was giving him some history of my childhood and all of that. And my first wife was physically and verbally abusive. And I started seeing therapists at 21. Mm -hmm. And so I had an idea something was up and, and I knew enough that if I'm with someone who's physically and verbally abusive and as bad as that marriage was, there's something going on with me. And he said 13 words that changed my life. He's, you know, I summed it all up you know, after explaining a bit of my childhood and her and everything, I said, you know, Mike, I just don't know how to be a man. Mm. And he said, you know, Kenny, when I was in your shoes, I went, became an expert. Mm. That those 13 words changed my life. Cause from that moment on, if he made a suggestion about a class, about a book, I had it read before our next session. And I figured that over a 10 year period, if I, you know, I always took breaks, but if I added it all up, I probably saw him once a week for seven years out of those 10 years. Like mm -hmm. I worked my tail off. And so it was in those first couple sessions. Well, we did EMDR mm -hmm. around. I, I was 10 years old when I woke up in the middle of the night just to use the bathroom, open up the door. And there's my mom passed out naked on the toilet. It's when I discovered she was an alcoholic. I remember it was like Star Trek. I felt this tingling in my feet moving up my body. And as it was happening, I was screaming inside, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying. Like I vanished, you know, whoever I was before that. But, you know, like most people, oh, child is all right, doesn't deal with, you know. And, and so we did EMDR on that moment and I split open like i 
broke. And that's when I was like, wow. And he said to me before I left the office that day, he said, whatever you do, don't think about what we just did. If it comes up, think about anything else. And I remember that whole weekend. I felt like rice, like, you know, tempered glass, how it breaks into millions mm -hmm. of pieces. I felt that was my whole body and soul being held together by rice paper. And if anyone or something mentioned any of that, I'd just break apart. That's when it hit. Wow, this stuff really gets to you. You don't leave it in the past. It runs your life. And then, of course, as I, you know, since then, all the research I've done. Look, any aspect of your life isn't working. It's childhood. Like, it's just so conclusive. And so that's, I went and became an expert, like you said, you know, on the, well, I'm an expert on the things where I'm dysfunctional. And so that means I everything? teach a lot okay. of different things because I, <laughs> I got a lot of dysfunctions. It's so interesting. Our stories are similar. So I found out my mom was an alcoholic when I was seven. And so there was one night where I woke up in the middle of the night to pee. And I went into my mom's room and all the lights were still on and she had passed out downstairs. And so I went down there, dragged her upstairs. And then it was a couple years later, I woke up in the middle of the night. I felt like I was going to fucking die if I couldn't sleep in my mom's bed. And it started a pattern of me sleeping in her bed every night, and my dad going to sleep in my bed. And then they eventually sent me to a therapist. And then years later, I asked my mom, hey, did you ever tell that therapist that you were an alcoholic and that you and dad fought all the time? And her response was, no, it didn't seem relevant. <laughs> What's so fascinating, you know, I was just responding to a comment on YouTube about, you know, sort of have a video about, you know, how a child becomes a narcissist. And the commenter says, my son hasn't, you know, shown empathy since he's a child and, you know, really disparaging her son. And she's like, what can I do to help him? So he doesn't evolve into this. And I'm like, go get help yourself, lady. Yes. Did you not watch the video? Children become narcissistic because of the way they're raised, like the detachment. And that's what my newest book, I have two books. The first one is your journey to yourself and or your journey to success. And the newest is your journey to being yourself. And what it shows is the single greatest killer on the planet today is denial and self-deception. Mm -hmm. It has been for centuries Nobody's dealing with it. Nobody's talking about it. And I've laid out a process because the, in every level of recovery, what keeps people from getting to what I call the other side is their denial and self-deception. And that people are just so detached from truth of how much trauma we go through in childhood. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk more about what your experience was growing up. So were your parents together? Parents were 16 and 18 when they were married, four kids by 21 and 22. Oh my God. My mom was adopted. My dad was beat to death as a kid. He never hit us, but he was filled with stored rage, completely detached. Also, you know, he's trying to build a kingdom, you know, finishing school, starting a career, all of those different things. My mom was emotionally a child. You know, if, if she couldn't handle anything, she'd just scream and go, this is too much and go hide in her bedroom. I don't know exactly when the alcoholism start. I have memories She'd always, we call it scritchling, where you lightly drag your nails across. Scritchling. <laughs> yeah, it's not a scratch. It's not a tickle. It's a scritchle. Scritchle. Uh, she'd do that on my back. And I remember as a kid watching her walk out and she's stumbling. I'm like, wow, mom's eyes must be bad. And, you know, mm -hmm. then once I found her, I'm like, oh my God, she was always drunk. So probably started drinking somewhere around that five to seven range, similar to you. I uh, just wasn't aware of it till much later. And so we were primarily 
abandoned. He had no structure, you know, no care. And it was, and then, I, you know, I had an older brother who beat the living hell out of me. He was huge. Mm. He would just hold me by my head. And I'd have to lock myself in the bathroom for hours. So my childhood was spent in isolation, trying to protect myself. And because my adaptation was to read the room and read emotions, I just saw the world differently. So the second I opened my mouth, the whole house would turn on me. And so, you know, I just learned to shut down and I had no personality. I had, I like, I remember laying in bed as a kid thinking, I wonder who I'll marry. I wonder who will pick me. Like, I didn't know I had a choice. Mm. Like, I hope she's pretty. And like both women that I've been married to asked me to marry them. Really? Yeah. And so like when I started working with Mike, I'm 38 years old. I had no needs and wants. The only thing I'd ever been was an athlete. And mm. so I didn't have any hobbies. I had nothing in my life. And she triangulated. and so. I went 10 years without seeing or speaking to anyone in my family. I had no friends. She was physically and verbally abusive. She's a narcissistic sociopath, borderline also. And that, what that tells you when you end up with someone like that, that's a mirror into what you experienced in, in childhood because mm -hmm. you think that's okay. That's all you know. It's that's what love is. And so, yeah, how would I, how would I, and, and if I, if I've learned you know, my dad's biggest deficit was denial. If he, he had to be right. And so, you know, I didn't know what truth was. I didn't know how to live in truth. And so whatever she, we'd spend hours where she'd berate me and, you know, she'd have done something, but by the end of it, I'm apologizing, crying, you know, I just, that's how I got raised to be was. Yeah. I the funny. Yeah. I'm not a person. I am whatever you need me to be. And that's how I survived childhood. How did that relationship end? How did you get out of it? Like, what was the breaking uh, point? Well, in that 10 years of marriage, we had 12 instances of intimacy. So an instance would be any type of compliment or kind word, any type of non-sexual physical touch, like a hug or holding hands or any type of sexual act. So 12 in 10 years. The last was two and a half years before the divorce. We're getting re ready to go to dinner. And she says, your butt looks good in those jeans. And so because I had no skills, I didn't know how to defend myself. The only way I knew how to get out of the relationship was to cheat on her and do it in a way that I'd get caught so that she, you know, and so that's how I set it up. And back then I justified it. I mean, there's a level of, I mean, I hired an escort and I remember I said to her, just pretend like you like me. Just touch me and pretend like you mm. like me. Now, there's an element of that that's very sad and very authentic and okay to ask for, but also completely lacking in maturity and moderation for recognizing, look, if that's how I'm being treated, it's up to me to take responsibility. Like, I'm part of the problem too. But again, I hadn't been, I'd never seen a child. I didn't know. I was still a child at 30 some years old, you know? And so it was the best I could do at the time. I'm not condoning my actions. That's yet at the same time, how could I have acted any other way based on my life experience? So it's, you know, forgiveness for both is how I see it. And so that's how I got out of it. What led you to get stopped drinking at 19? Or do you say 19 or 21? Early 21 or 22. The hangovers. You know, when I, even when I drank young, I would drink real hard, but usually quit it around midnight. 
because I hated the hangovers. And then you're up till bar closes at two. You get something to eat, you know, three, three thirty in the morning, you go to bed, wake up the next day, and you're just kind of tired. Well, I'd wake up and have diarrhea, the shakes, and for three days I'd feel terrible. And I just like, I, I can't do this anymore. I mean, ultimately, what always gets, you know, the two times it's the hangovers. I can't, the consequence is so much worse than any benefit. And then you start weighing, like, I've slept with women I don't want to be with. You know, I was so young. And you're, you know, all the troubles in your life were all about drinking. Mm -hmm. I, and I just, I didn't want the consequences anymore. And so that's why I quit. I mean, back then, the way we looked at it, no one would, someone would just call me a young kid who parties. Mm -hmm. No one would have put me in the alcoholic category. But, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer. It's not about how much you drink or how you drink. It's the consequences. And when you know it's destructive and you continue doing it, whatever the behavior is, you're, you're an addict. Yeah, I agree. I think through all this, you know, I was under the impression I knew my childhood was like less than ideal, but I didn't realize how much it had impacted me because for me, there was not physical abuse at all. There wasn't really even like verbal abuse. It was all a lot of scapegoat abuse a lot of parentification, but I was never told like I was a piece of shit. Like my parents always told me that they loved me. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't until I was nine years sober and I realized that the feeling that I experienced when I was quote unquote abandoned in a relationship was the same exact feeling that I felt as a little girl waking up in the middle of the night. And I had no idea that what I was experiencing was complex PTSD. Like that was mind blowing to me. When was the realization that you were suffering from complex PTSD? It was when I started working with Mike. Mike, because I'd seen so many. Most, I don't, I don't know, know what the fuck they're doing. No, well, they're only trained. Look, they go to school and they learn how to diagnose and give you a label and prescribe medication. They're not taught how to heal. They don't learn about code. I can't tell you how many therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists I've had as clients that I've had to teach about childhood trauma and about codependency, love addiction, all of these. They don't learn what you really need to learn to help somebody heal. They're vast, as Mike taught me, he goes, look, anyone with a degree, if they haven't done outside learning, they can't help you. And luckily, Mike, that's all he did, you know? So I got really lucky and, you know, I spent all those years talking to people that hadn't done that work. And so no one could, you know, really help me. And, but yeah, you know, the, it was in working with him and gaining all the knowledge of, oh my God, I had no idea these simple little moments like to go with yours. I, I have this memory of, I don't know, preteen going to the refrigerator to grab cottage cheese. And my mom comes screaming over, no, 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 that's for the dogs. Now, the way a child processes that or preteen processes that isn't, okay, wait a minute. The reason mom's screaming at me is because she mismanages the money that my dad gives her every month. She spends it on clothes, and therefore she's afraid she doesn't have enough money to feed us. Instead, the way I process it is, oh, if I eat, I'm in trouble. Mm -hmm. If I eat, mom doesn't love me. And mm -hmm. oh, by the way, in our house, we feed the dogs before we feed the kids. Also, the cottage cheese, she just used it to hide the dog's pills. But we don't teach parents how to communicate to kids. So she, you know, so from that, for 30 well, 20, 30 years, I starved myself. I'm playing mm -hmm. pro hockey and I'm living off of ding, uh, you know, one or two packages of ding dongs and several super. Oh, bugs. <laughs> it, you'd ask me to eat. I'm like, no, I hate eating. It's boring. I, I created an adaptation that mm -hmm. chose to starve myself and believe 
that I didn't like food or eating because it made me boring. Well, that was so I could not experience that traumatic moment. And so most therapists and people, oh, that's not trauma. I'm sorry. That's, you know, most people, oh, that's not a big deal. And that's what people don't realize is those simple moments when mom and dad roll their eyes, shrug their shoulders, don't want to play, don't show up for a game, are late. That's trauma. It embeds in you and you relive that until you do the work to heal it. And, you know, that's when once I started gaining the knowledge and skills and tools, as I call it, that none of us are taught, I started to see, oh, my God, it's everything. You know, your whole childhood is just filled with it. And my mom, like my mom adored me, but my mom severely enmeshed with me. I became both my parents' emotional surrogate spouse. And, you know, and my mom's dynamic was really twisted. Because my mom also lusted after me. Mm. My mom never did, you know, she never did overt sexual abuse. It was covert. And so, like, when she'd hug me, she'd push her groin into me. Or when I'd walk into the room, she'd be like, Daddy, oh. You know, she she thought I was hot. So I have this dynamic where my mom has sexualized me. And I'm her favorite. She lets me stay home from school. And I realized if I get sick and hurt, she wouldn't drink. So I'm sick and hurt all the time to keep her sober. But then she'd get drunk. So my mom would be sober four to six weeks and then it'd be in a walking coma for seven to 10 days. So I suffered horrific repeated abandonment because during that four to six weeks, I was her spouse. Then she's gone for no reason. But then during that drinking, if she was able to stand or speak, she'd look at me and go, next time I want to drink, will you just give me a hug instead? So now she's making me responsible for her sobriety. So my messages from women just... No wonder I picked who I picked. Like, good luck. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> Very yeah. similar. My mom was a periodic drinker too. It's almost worse that way, you know? Like the, yeah. the. I don't know. I don't know the other experience. Yeah, I, that's true. I that's just true. know all I've ever, anytime I've met someone who grew up with an alcoholic or any type of addict, work addict, whatever it was, it's hell. Have you ever connected with Paul Gilmartin? He's does the Mental Illness Happy Hour podcast. He talks a lot about the emotional incest that he suffered with his mom. And boy, yeah. is that a real mind fuck. Yeah, it, it's like when I was, this was only 10, 12 years ago, I was doing mirror work. And, you know, I was doing the whole, I love myself. I love myself. And I could feel that. And then that's the way mirror work works. All of a sudden, this voice, your authentic voice pops up and it goes, what about Kenny? Mm. And I was like, huh. So I go, I love you, Kenny. And I like, I mean, I just freaked out. And I said it two or three more times. And I like, I stepped back against the wall because I couldn't hear my voice. I'm like saying it going, I don't hear anything. And then it just hit me. I broke. I went, oh my God, no wonder I could never trust when a woman said, I love you because my mom would say, I love you, Kenny. I always heard my mom's voice. And like there, like it, I mean, I've been in recovery for years. And it wasn't until that moment that I made the connection of no wonder, like there's another twisted aspect of the enmeshment that if a woman said, I love you, Kenny, I didn't know what to do with that because my mom, I, my, my mom's face, even though I didn't register it physically or anything subconsciously, they just became my mother. And I don't know what to do with you. Now you've confused me because love for me growing up was never consistent. So you have your first wife, you get it out of that, you start doing this work with Mike. Tell me about how it unfolded, like with your second wife 
And like, what issues were you still seeing there that needed to be resolved? It was much better. I at least picked somebody who liked me. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, it's true. My first, we should, neither of us liked each other. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's just the truth. And I was equally despicable to her from the disempowered victim position because by not stepping up and asking for your needs and wants, you sit in silent resentment and you become passive aggressive and, you know, whiny and all these different, you know, victim tools that you use. And so I learned to communicate. I learned to know what my needs and wants were. I learned to satisfy, do my self care instead of depending on somebody else. And I could set boundaries and say no. And, you know, I picked somebody who was also interested in recovery and, you know, mm. joined me in that process. So for a period of time, we were building a great relationship. Looking back, I just didn't have enough under my belt. And, mm. you know, as I always say to me, if you can't describe your relationships in one sentence or less, that holds equally you equally accountable, you're not over it. And so I described my first marriage mm. this way as we're both very young and we did the best we could with where we were at the time. And my second marriage, I say, we both stopped doing what brought us together. And mm -hmm. that's simple. I stopped saying no. There's a chapter in my first book, Your Journey to Success, where I, you know, it wasn't until maybe two years after the divorce, it hit me. Our marriage died that day. A simple little conversation. And, you know, because there's a, a confrontation model that I teach. And when you use it, you don't fight. You actually, it's brilliant. You get nothing but connection, even if you are on polar opposite sides of a belief or something like that. And we're in the kitchen. We're using that, having a discussion. She turned to me and she goes, pardon my language, but she goes, no, we say fuck here. So she said, would you stop being so fucking boundaried and just tell me what you really think and feel? And I looked straight up at the ceiling. I went, Kenny, don't do it. Don't do it. She's just afraid. And then that old codependent alcoholic voice popped in and goes, yeah, but if you really love her, you'll give her what she wants. And so I started talking, you know, allowing anger and, you know, all of this stuff. And that, it was that one little yes. And I kept doing it. It was my job to stay the leader and stay. She was afraid. And I believe it's a man's job. If you're going to lead a woman, most men think it's financially and all that other stuff. Oh, it's emotionally. And most men are clueless. And that that's the part men are playing in relationships. And I was doing a great job of that. But that day I dropped it and then I kept dropping it. And by the time I noticed it, it was too far gone. And, you know, we had a discussion once. And when we were separated, you know, we were talking about who we might pick if we divorce. And she spent about six or seven minutes describing a man. And I said to her, I said, do you realize you just described me? Mm. And I saw her whole, like I saw her leave her body. She went just blank, numb. And I went, oh, it's over. Like she doesn't want this anymore. And she had asked for the separation the day after I filed for divorce. Cause I'm like, you can't fix that. And see, I had enough recovery that instead of cheating, you know, doing all the other stuff, I'm like, okay, I get it. You're on to something else. It's over. I accept your no. Like that right there is a, even she, though she didn't say the words, that's a, that's a loving no. And because it's truth mm -hmm. and truth is love. And so I loved her back and filed divorce the next day. Can you talk a little bit about this conflict confrontation model that you teach? Sure. Yeah. The biggest problem in all fights is it's a race to the bottom. It's a victim position. 
what you have is two people going, well, what you did to me is this. Well, what you did to me. And so what you have is people going, look, I'm not even going to listen to you until you validate my victim position. Mm-hmm. Well, let me know how that works out. That's two kids fighting over Tonka trucks. You know, so you want to talk about two people in their child state, watch them argue. Then mm-hmm. they're not adult at all. And so the first thing to do is to make a request. You know, I'm having some feelings about something. Is now a good time to talk about it? And you get to celebrate their no, no, not now isn't the time. Okay, can you tell me sometime in the next three days when we could schedule a time to talk? And so you agree, and then you both agree, you both show up and ready. And so the first thing to do is to express what you feel you observed as best you can without you statements. So an example might be, okay, so what I noticed the other day is when I came in from work, I walked inside the house and I said hello to you. And what I observed in my recollection is you turned your back on me and then you picked up the phone, started dialing the number, turned back at me and said, take out the trash. About what I see, I make up and that's key. I make up because I'm not in your head. I make Mm -hmm. up that you were rejecting me. I know that I made myself, this is another key. No one ever makes us feel anything. Mm -hmm. I made myself feel neglected, ignored, abandoned, useless, invisible. And so I was wondering if you'd be willing to give me some more information as to what was going on in you and what your recollection is of events. So in other words, you gather information, you share, you take full ownership. Mm -hmm. This is my recollection. This is my reality. Have you ever heard me do reality arguments? Mm -hmm. Okay. What do you see? A water bottle. Take a look. You sure? Yeah. You don't see the bright red label that says Coke? (laughs) No, my eyes are failing me. (laughs) That's a reality argument. Think of football. We were talking about football before we started this. There's a controversial play and you're saying, no, that was an incompletion. Oh my God, he caught it. You just have different realities. We all have different realities. We look at the world and some people, for some reason, see that the sky is purple. And so instead of arguing realities, our job is to go, wow, that's fascinating. Mm. So you, you see a purple sky when you look up. Please tell me more. But the child races to the victim position and codependently demands, no, you have to accept my reality. And if you don't, you don't love me. That's a manipulative codependent dynamic. So someone with maturity and moderation recovering from codependence recognizes I have my reality about events, which is only true to me. And my job is to find out what your reality is and any feelings I have, because we know now, we now know scientifically, every emotion you have as an adult, you manufactured that yourself and it's all based on childhood. They did not make you feel. You're taking a childhood emotion and putting it on that person. They didn't make you feel that. So you take ownership of the whole process of what you made up about what you observed, about what you the feelings you made up about what you think you observed. And so you share that openly and vulnerably without saying you made me feel, but communicating, this is what I've done to myself. And this is my reality on events. Can you tell me what yours is? Now they may go, well, yeah, I recall that. And you know, so if someone, I'm going to flip the script. And so If I were listening to that, if I were mature and moderate, the first thing I'd do is go, wow. Well, first of all, let me see if I hear you correctly. What I think I hear you saying is you walked in the house and your recollection is I turned my back on you 
grabbed my phone, started dialing a number, and then turned back to you and told you to take out the trash. Did I hear you correctly? Did I leave anything out? Okay. I'm okay. So I'm glad I hear you correctly. And then about that, you chose to make yourself feel this, this, and this. Those are huge feelings. First of all, I appreciate your vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Are you open to hearing me sharing my reality or did you just need to be heard? Mm. Like, do you hear the difference in that? Yeah, like, but God, how can you find two people that are willing to do that? Well, that's <laughs> that's why I teach this stuff so couples can learn. This is how you talk to each other. This is called maturity and moderation. This is called interdependence. And this is how you create loving relationships. But none of us are taught that. And so no wonder our relationships suck. And so people go, oh, this is so stilted and weird. I don't want to talk that way. And so what they're saying is, oh, I want to stay the codependent child. Okay, I'll let you have that reality. But you do realize these are the consequences. The current state of your relationship dynamics are going to repeat until you learn to do this. As long as you're okay with those consequences, I'll sign on to that. But I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna enable you and go, oh, you poor thing. When you tell me about it, I'm just gonna go, wow. Sounds like that's tough for you. I'm sure you'll figure it out. I trust you. Like I'm not gonna go, you poor thing, and you should dump him. No, you're choosing it because now you know there's a different way, and you're choosing not to use it. That's mm-hmm. on you. Yeah, I mean, what does one do when they try to engage in that, and the other person is just completely unwilling? Well, now you get into morals and values, needs and wants, negotiables and non-negotiables. Nobody knows what they are. Everyone goes, oh, I know my morals and values. No, you don't. I guarantee it. (laughs) Because there are millions of morals and values. First, people get those incorrect. Let me give you an example. Say I valued um, sexual intimacy. To me, I value that once a week. And my partner values that three times a day. So they would see my value as morally bad and theirs as morally good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now they may not see it as bad or they may determine, well, once a month, that's morally bad. Okay. So morals, it's just, is it good or bad? Our value is what most people think are morals. All right. So there's all these ways, spending money, parenting, hobbies, conversation, TV shows, like their politics. There are millions of morals and values that nobody has sat down and figured out, what do I really believe on this? And then they get in relationships, they don't have these discussions, and that's why relationships fail. So that's the first thing. Need and wants are different. Needs are things we need to survive. Food, clothing, shelter, money, all of those things. Wants are things that bring us joy. But most people pursue their wants, trips, new phones, new clothes, at the expense of their needs. Because they're going against their morals and values, they're deprived, they're giving themselves away, can't say no, can't set boundaries with themselves or others. And therefore, they're in a relationship where they're allowing things that are non-negotiable to them. There are values that don't work. And then they want to change their partner and get them to be different. Well, they never have these discussions. They don't even know it in themselves. Like I had one client who hired me. She'd been married for 19 years. She hired me because her husband's a pot smoker and she can't stand it. And I asked her, how did you meet him? Well, I was, I, at this house, from <laughs> I was at this house party, walked through the garage and he's outside with a bunch of friends and he's smoking a joint. So boom, she didn't know her morals and values right from the beginning. This man is doing something that's non-negotiable. Now you want me to fix something that you ignored in yourself. I can't fix that. But because we're not taught to do this work, 
you're in a marriage that you never wanted to be in. Mm. That's on you. So mm-hmm. you've gone against yourself. He mm-hmm. hasn't done anything. He showed you. And that's the thing. Everybody shows us who they are right away. But because we don't do that pre-work, we go against ourselves. We select, we allow things that are non-negotiable. And then we yell at our partner because they're doing non-negotiables. Well, that's on us. We have to reconcile that and either adjust our non-negotiables or possibly leave mm-hmm. and pick somebody that fits what we want. So for instance, here's how that looks. My second wife, most of all of our things lined up, except she was a pig. She was a piler. She grew up in a house where they do laundry like better than Chinese people, like amazing folders, but they pile it all <laughs> over the house. And so she had piles all over the house. Well, I grew up in a house where we had to wipe the shower down after we showered sink. If there was one fork in the sink, my mom would run the dishwasher. One towel, like our house, it was really dysfunctional and it was too clean. So I realized, okay, I need to get some maturity moderation. And so we sat down and discussed. And I said, look, I can't live with these piles, but I understand piles are comfortable for you. So here's where I'm willing to move to. And what I suggested was, look, I will push myself to the very extreme, allowing your piles. But when I hit my Breaking point, point yeah. what if I, I took all of your stuff and piled it somewhere? Can you give me a place where it's okay for me, for me to, to put pile. your piles? <laughs> for and me to pile your yes. piles. And she <laughs> said, yes, in the closet. Like literally. It, but see, this is the beauty. We negotiate it. And so she'd literally stand in front of the hamper, get undressed, and it would pile around the hamper. And I'd crack up. I'm like, you're so adorable. And I'm like, what are you thinking? She's like, I don't know. This is just what I do. And and so it wasn't a fight. When you use these skills, it's no longer a fight. I allowed her to make that mess and thought it was adorable. Because I knew once I hit my limit, I could scoop it up. And so she'd come in the house and she'd be like looking for a pause. Where's my dog's at? Shoot. If I didn't want it stuffed in my closet, I could have put it away. So in other words, you have both people living in adult maturity and moderation, taking responsibility, asking for their needs and wants, discussing the morals and values, negotiating what is negotiable and non-negotiable, and using the confrontation model. And now you can navigate things until you stop using that. And once we stopped, that was the death of the relationship. Mm. Powerful. I want to shift because I think this is so interesting. I was looking in your book and just like the role of the internet and social media, because I really do feel like that's like everything that's wrong with the world today. So do you want to dive into that some? Because you have several chapters where you discuss that. Yeah. Well, all to me, social media has just exposed what's already there. It's made it right in our face how absolutely dysfunctional we all are all of us. And this is what people don't get because most people are vastly undereducated on codependence. They only, they think codependence is only the weak, spineless, you know, no boundaries, gets run over type of person. That's what's called the disempowered codependent. What people don't know about is there's the polar opposite, what's called the falsely empowered codependent. So every successful person on this planet, that's the falsely empowered. What we hold up, the people work eight hours a week, you know, at the top of the pyramid that our society says is normal and healthy is severely codependent in the falsely empowered. And most people now label them as narcissists. They're not narcissists. They're falsely empowered codependents. So overused. Exactly. And so their adaptation, you know, this happens a lot 
it, because there was divorce in the home and one or both parents enmeshed with the child. And so that creates a fear of intimacy. And that's why they pursue work, hobbies. There's something always more important than the relationship. That's why they're so detached and avoidant. That's also why they're so controlling. I've done videos on this where I describe the difference between a falsely empowered codependent and a narcissist. They're almost exactly the same. The difference is the falsely empowered, I liken it to the seasons in Colorado. There are four distinct seasons. They can last a while and you can think this is where you live, but eventually it changes. A narcissist, it's the desert. Mm. Every blue moon, you'll see a pocket of water, but they're consistent. They are always that way. And, you know, there are other key factors, but that gives people a basic, you know, understanding of, well, you're so nice, but then this, well, that's codependency. You know, there are other, you know, there are a lot of subtleties to it. But so what you're seeing is a proliferation of our dysfunction and how absolutely emotionally underdeveloped we are. Everyone is, yeah. It, it exposes it because it's such a thirst trap for our low self-esteem and all of our issues. And, you know, so you have all these cancel culture warriors and victim groups and they don't realize all of their screams for that are projection, it's self-deception. They're taking their unhealed pain and trying to control the outside world instead of addressing theirs. I don't blame them. No one's taught them that's what they're doing. You know, that your desire to control speech and triggers and all of these things, that's about your childhood trauma. That's mm -hmm. not about what some person tweeted. That's, you know, and and but but victimhood sells. Mm -hmm. victimhood works and so what the internet has really created is multiple classes of professional victims mm. and we reward them for their victimhood which is mm. absolutely crippling and devastating wait till you get to that part of the book when i break down the whole victim blaming and victim culture and i think i do a pretty convincing job to show how dysfunctional it is their intent is correct, but because they don't have the knowledge of how this stuff works, they don't realize that they're actually creating more victims. The whole book is a paradox. The answer is in the opposite. In almost every way we pursue life, almost everything is a paradox. We're pursuing it in the opposite direction of what we need to do. Yeah, when I had Dr. Drew on my podcast, he was he was saying everything, everything that you see on the internet, all the discourse that you see, it's all just unresolved childhood issues. I think the yeah. other part of it, and you said it magnifies it more, but I do wonder if it's increased at some, it's just this, it's this desire for attention, right? Like as far as like what we see with people on TikTok claiming that they have like certain mental illnesses or this or that, I just feel like it is people are more starved for attention than ever before and are willing to take that negative attention more so than ever. So then the question that begs the question why do they feel the need for attention what where did they learn that they need attention that they have a deficit of attention mm -hmm. basically we're using the internet as surrogate parents to dump our unhealed trauma mm -hmm. and hope that somebody will take responsibility for it so because we're stuck as the child and that's the problem with the victim groups is it doesn't the adult never has to take responsibility for healing. They always get to stay the child because you care more about fixing the problem than I do. What a payoff. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant coping strategy. 
is I get the whole world to surround me and go, oh my God, you poor thing, this should have never happened to you. Now, I agree it should have never happened to you, yet you're now an adult mm. and you're responsible for doing the work to move through that. And when we promote, advocate, and and allow people not to take responsibility, we are sequestering them to a life of emotional purgatory stuck in the pain, unhealed pain of childhood. I don't find that loving. I find that abusive. That's just my reality. I want everyone to hold on to theirs, but I've never seen that model work. It always ends up in more trauma. The person will experience more trauma and they will inflict more trauma. Yeah. And so the only model I've ever seen work is personal response. I teach four things, truth, responsibility, healing, and forgiveness. You have to get into truth. We've all been through this. We are all part of every problem we've ever experienced now that we're an adult. Therefore, it's up to us to take responsibility for the part we play. And we do that and learn how to do that by becoming an expert in our healing. Mm. And we learn the things that myself and others teach. We do the work of recovery. And when we do that, we can not only forgive ourselves, but the people who hurt us. And now we're in maturity and moderation. That reconnects us to what I call our authentic self. Because from there, whether I'm perfect or imperfect, I'm always attached to my inherent value work, inherent mm -hmm. value and worth. When I'm stuck in the worst day cycle, which is what creates all of this, now I'm looking outside of myself. I'm reliving the four stages of that, trauma, fear, shame, and denial. I'm stuck in a child state. I'll never get out of it. And so I can look at it once I've done, you know, this is the authentic self cycle of trauma, of truth, responsibility, healing, and forgiveness. When I do that, I can recognize, wow, I just did the best I could with where I am. Mm -hmm. When I'm in the worst day cycle, I can't do that. I need you to be different mm. for me to be okay. That's a sure sign you're detached from your authentic self. What you mentioned EMDR, you mentioned mirror work. What were some other like key modalities that have really had a big impact on your healing journey? The closest thing, everyone's out there looking for a magic pill. Like we see this new rise in psychedelics and pot. Mm -hmm. I've never done psychedelics. I smoked a little pot as a kid. All I've ever seen from anyone that pursues that is they get an emotional experience that makes them feel better, but I've never seen their underlying problems ever improve. It's just another magic pill mm -hmm. that, you know, so I can skip doing the work. Mm -hmm. The closest thing I've ever seen to a magic pill is neurofeedback, where, you know, people can literally get concrete, complete change over certain aspects they've always struggled with. Actually, it's funny, Mike, my old therapist, I'm weird. Most people are scared to death to do the work and recovery. I was the opposite. Once I heard that phrase, he's like, you want to try this? I'm like, yeah, I'll try anything. Like, I just wanted to be better. Exactly. Most people don't do that. They're like, nah. well, eventually at some point I ran into somebody who started telling me about neurofeedback. So I'm like, yeah, I'll try it. Well, I was in the midst of that second marriage and just is really going bad. And I go into the office to Mike for an appointment. And he's like, what did you do? Like, what do you mean? He goes, you're different. What have you done recently? Mm. And I told him about the neurofeedback. And he's like, you need to tell me about that. I've never seen you this moderate. Wow. You're going through absolutely horrific stuff. And you are handling this mm. in such an incredible way. Well, 
Mike took his own advice. Mike is now one of the leading experts in, in neurofeedback. In neurofeedback. And you can, if people are interested, you can go to my website, kennyweiss.net. You can learn about our relationship, but he has graciously written articles. So you know, if you want to give neurofeedback a try, exactly what to look for, the you know, accreditations, the type of neurofeedback, everything. That to me is one of you know, if you're looking for a magic pill, that's as close as science or any of us have ever developed. So that that's huge. But really, it's been a conglomeration. Pia Melody's work on codependence, groundbreaking stuff. And she's the only one I've ever seen talk about the falsely empowered. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know Pia Melody stuff, you don't. Oh, we talk about her a ton on here. <laughs> yeah. You don't know codependence if you don't know Pia, mm-hmm. is my opinion. She's brilliant. That's been huge for me. And then, have you have you, been, have, have you been, had a chance to go to the meadows at all or do any trainings there? No, luckily, Mike was trained by her, and so okay. I learned all of it from Mike. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, I am probably keeping them in business because I probably sold 10, 10, 10 million of her books. Because I'm like, look, no person should ever be allowed to go on a date until they read her three books. They're that important, I think. I would uh, love to have Mike on the pod. He sounds like he'd be a great guest. Does he do? Is he open to that? I'll ask him. Yeah, I'd love that. I'll ask him. I, I I keep trying to get him out of his shell. He's he's talked to me a couple of times in this format. Well, I'm sure he's familiar with many of the guests I've had because I've had Terry Real on. I've had. He loves Terry Real. Yeah, I've. So I dropped Terry Real. He might. Okay. Yeah, because he's a big fan of Terry. Yeah, he's awesome. Talk about what are your parents still alive? No, they're both gone. Talk about how your relationship with them was impacted, like through your healing journey. I mean, did you go no contact? Was there ever any sort of a resolution or what did forgiveness look like towards them for you? I There's a story I tell in, in my second book that you're reading where I think it's called The Day I Saw My Dad's Authentic Self. Mm. And he was dying of cancer and he's sitting there watching TV and doing what he always does, critiquing everybody. And as I sat there and I watched him, it all, it all because of all the recovery, it all hit me. I went, oh my God. My dad would always cut my legs out from under me and sabotage what I was doing. What I realized in that moment is my grandfather taught Dale Carnegie, win friends and uh, influence people. He's one of the first people west of the Mississippi. He was me, yet he beat the hell out of my father. So my father ended up becoming an engineer. So as I'm watching my dad, he's having these insights. And we always thought uh, my mom was gifted as far as reading people and stuff like that. We always thought my dad was clueless as I watched my dad, because now I'm in more reality and and all Mm -hmm. the things I've learned. I'm like, oh my God, we missed it. My dad's brilliant. What I realized is my mom could see darkness. Mm -hmm. Dad could see greatness. And I got both. And I'm watching my dad. I'm going, oh my God, he has no idea how gifted he is. Mm -hmm. And it all came clear. I went, no wonder he cut my legs out from me, from under me. I'm his unrealized potential. Mm. I'm what he always was, but he couldn't live because mm-hmm. no one had taught him or offered. My dad thought psychology and all of this was awful. He did yeah. all of it. Yet here's a man who on his own, without ever reading books, was completely different as an elder than he was when we were younger. He did it by observing people and, and consciously taking ownership and changing. And so in that moment, I saw the truth about my father, that the reason he went after me wasn't because he's coming after me. He was coming after himself. But he, this is how denial and projection worked. 
we think we're angry at them, but we're angry at ourselves. And we're using that to try and teach us. And he didn't see all of that. And I saw it all in that moment. And, and so I was, and that's the beauty. If you learn the stuff I teach is whether your parents are alive or dead, you get into truth of what was really happening and you can forgive them and you will feel a level of connection and connection and closeness you've always wanted that you could never get. And everyone's afraid to admit how bad their parents were. They're bad in a good way. And once, once you conquer that, that's when you're set free. And somewhat similar with my mom, it was learning how to set boundaries with my mom. Like, here's a cute story. My mom would call me. And if I didn't answer, she'd call me 13 to 15 times. <laughs> it's your mother. I have to talk to you. And it always, you know, like dead, very manipulative. Yeah, it's always, yeah, medical emergency. I'm going through that right now with my Something. mom. Something, but no, yeah. not even that much information, but very cryptic so that it had you know <laughs> well i'd learned about boundaries in the confrontation model and mm -hmm. so all of that was the enmeshment that would trigger me i think it took me about three days to calm down mm -hmm. and so i called her back and i used the confrontation model on her i said hi mom i saw that you called the other day and i want you to know i think it's fantastic that you enjoy me so much that you like to call me <laughs> repeatedly that you really want my attention. I really appreciate that. But I want to share something that I've learned about myself recently. And what I've recently learned is that when somebody calls me repeatedly, for whatever reason, I choose to make myself feel really scared and really freaked out. And so what I tend to do is run away from that. I know most people would run towards it, but I have this weird thing in me where my skin crawls and I run away. So you're welcome to call me as much as you want or do whatever it is you want. I just know that going forward, if you feel like you want to talk to me right away, the best way would be to leave one message. And when I'm in a place to call you back, I'll call you back. So do you see, I didn't ask her to change. I took total ownership that I'm doing this to myself. And, you know, she gets to do whatever she wants. But I'm also letting her know what the boundary is. Well, I was like a week later. She calls. And literally, my mom was such a child. She's so cute. She goes, um, hello, Kenny. This is your mother. And I'd like to talk to you. And I'm only going to leave one message. <laughs> and so I called her back. And she goes, and, and again, she's trying to make me her parent. She goes, did you see? I only left one message. Wasn't that good? And again, I set the boundary. I said, you know, mom, I think what I hear you saying is you feel really good about that. And if you mm -hmm. feel really good about that, then I'm really happy for you. So in other words, again, I didn't jump into it. I set the boundary and allowed her to learn what it looks like to love herself instead of giving herself away like we do with social media. And, and I gave her an opportunity to decide if she wanted to validate herself or not. But at the same time, keeping my internal boundary so she can't affect me. And so those are some of the, you know, there were many others, but those are a couple of the sen sentinel moments where I learned to love and accept myself enough to love and forgive them. And that's the thing. If you're having problems with your parents, you haven't looked at your side of the street and what you need to recover from. And once you do that, then you'll see them authentically. And then you're both at peace, even if they never change. What about your siblings? Have any of them like gone on a healing journey? My younger brother has done the most work. You know, he's the only one where I can really talk about a lot of stuff because it makes sense to him. The others, 
it's just a di- it's a different language. Like you said earlier, when I was talking the confrontation model, you're like, huh? Who talks that way? No, so I mean, very few people, getting both you know, people very, to be able to do it is crazy. <laughs> yeah. So very few people know me. Yeah. Because to know me, like a lot of people just don't want to go here. The only person on the planet who's ever made the choice to know me and love me anyway is Mike, you know, and I treasure that. And so I've had to learn that most people, I can only show five, maybe 20% of myself because I have to respect where they are in their journey, Mm -hmm. but it's not their job to know me. It's my job to know me. And so I love me from that place. I hope one day I keep looking for, you know, male friends and I'd love to be in a relationship where I find a woman who's like, no, I want to learn. I want to, I want that too. I haven't yet, but I'm still hopeful and still pursuing it, you know, but in the end, the only person who can love me is me. And then last sort of one of of my last questions, you mentioned your daughters. So talk about how you realized how your childhood shit has impacted your role as a parent and how you've worked to repair that. Well, I started learning about healthy parenting during that divorce. So I made a, you know, I was much like my father. There's this weird thing that happens to me around my children. Even now I get very uncomfortable. You know, I realize it's what I learned from my father. Mm. My father didn't know how to emotionally attach. Mm -hmm. I remember watching it with one of my sister's kids they put, she was a baby, put him in her eye. And he's like this. He just, he didn't know, you know, he's had four kids and he's like, like scared of a child. And I kind of do the same thing. I can go blank and numb. And, but I own it. You know, I'm like, Hey, I'm struggling right now. I really want to be present, but I don't know how, I don't know how to do this right now. You know, so that's the best I can do. Like I've learned how to communicate. I've learned how not to place responsibility for the recovery at their feet, to communicate my feelings where they don't go, oh, let me fix it or any of that. I'm estranged from my children. My ex-wife also did what, you know, what's called parental alienation. But that Is doesn't mean- Is it your mean- first wife or your second? My first. Okay, got it. Yeah, but that doesn't mean I'm not parenting. Yeah. Because parenting, like I'm still working on me so that if they ever decide mm-hmm. they want a relationship, that they see a man who's completely different than they remember and that they're told I am. That's my job as a parent. And it doesn't matter if they're around or not. And I love, and this is the other thing, I have a lot of stuff on alienation and parents don't get this. I think it's amazing that my kids don't want to see me because what that means is, at least for where my children are right now, they feel that's their best decision. Well, as a parent, our job is not to get what we want from a child. That's codependence. Our job is to create an emotionally safe environment for our children to choose to become what they want to become. They don't have to fit into my mold. Well, this is what they want to become. Well, good for you. Good for you. Now, whether it's right or wrong, I, that's their reality. It's none of my business. It's painful, though, I'm sure. Horrific. Mm-hmm. Every day. Mm-hmm. I'm devastated, but that's my cross to bear, not theirs. Mm -hmm. Like that's my journey to work through. Do I constantly wish they'd reach out? But then I remind myself, Kenny, that's all about you. And your job as a parent, it's not about me. It's about allowing them to live a life that works for them. 
whether they know the full details or not doesn't matter. They're operating in in their reality and they get to do that. And yes, I'm horrifically devastated, but I'm focusing on what I can control, me, and how do I make myself a better parent? And how do I take ownership and look back through even mistakes we've never talked about and, and look at, okay, where if they ever want to talk about something, you know, my dream is if I could have one wish come true the rest of my life, it's that somewhere before my deathbed, my kids come to me and they tell me all the ways they hurt, I hurt them. So I can go, you're right. Tell me more so that they don't have to carry them. And they get a listening ear from a parent who goes, man, my heart breaks that I did that to you. And thank you so much. Oh, God, I just, I would be so grateful if they didn't have to carry that. Because I think that's what every kid wants from mm-hmm. them. More than anything. Just They to- just want their parents to admit it and go, yeah, I blew it. I'm not sure. That's very selfish of me too. Because I'm like, you know, that's about me and what I want to give them. Yeah. I don't know if that's what they want. I know because... And the reason I say selfish is because that's what I desperately wanted from my parents. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe they don't need that. Maybe what they need is what they're getting right now. That like there was a daughter I was would send text messages to. And then I realized, wow, I'm breaking, you know, even though she wouldn't respond, I just say, hey, I love you. thinking of you. And then I finally realized, wow, I'm crushing her boundaries. Mm-hmm. She's not responding. That's a no. So I sent her this message. Here, I'll just read it because I've had people reach out to me and go, wait, what is it you say? I think it's easier if I just read it. Please do. I I sent this to her several years ago. I said, I just want you to know that I don't text you anymore because I'm being respectful that for right now, you'd Mm -hmm. rather not have a relationship with me. Mm -hmm. But that does not mean I'm not constantly thinking about you and wanting the best for you. I always want you to do what is best for you so i love that you have set a boundary that works for you i love you bumble and i'm really proud of you so in other words i let her know why i'm not texting that it's okay that she doesn't respond there's no expectation on her she's free she doesn't owe me because so many kids feel like god i just have to Mm -hmm. do this for my parents and so i'm just setting her free and but letting her know because kids will also wonder, why aren't they chasing me as much as they, you know, like there's that dichotomy. So mm-hmm. I, I, in other words, I took ownership of the part I could play so that to do my best to give her clarity so she could decide whatever she wanted. That's and then you just let go and, and trust the process of life. That's beautiful. What are you jazzed about? What do you want to promote? What do you want people to know? I love, I think... What I put together in my new book, to me, it's really special. I'm talking about things I, at least, I mean, there are millions of people out there. I'm not hearing people talk about, and especially the paradox, the denial, self-deception, and nobody's going at it from the angle I'm going at it. And I think I've found some things I've never heard anybody talk about that are groundbreaking and could really move forward the psychology, self-help field. I personally don't want to be a star. I don't like that idea. I'd love for my ideas to get out there and be a star. I don't know if there's a way to do that. But I think what I put together in this book, I believe it's one of the best books out there. I feel that strong about it as far as people who want 
to reclaim their life. I think I've really laid out a solid, both of my books together, lay out a process that I think is the most complete that I've ever run across. That's my personal opinion. And so that's important. You know, that, that's legacy stuff is whether anyone ever reads my stuff on my deathbed, I can go, okay. Cause I spent three days contemplating suicide after my second divorce and was writing my kids a note. I could write about the pain I was in, but when I went to justify why it was the right choice for them, I knew too much psychology. So I knew how manipulative I couldn't talk myself out of it. And then I got pissed. I was like, after all these years of recovery, I shouldn't be here. And so I went back in my office and I wrote down, I don't know, the words are on my website. I forget them occasionally. Something to the effect of, I want to come up, I want to fundamentally change the psychology and personal development field and come up with processes that, that nobody has ever discovered that will bring the transformation and the full transformation that everybody's after. And I think I've, I think I've done that. So I'm really proud of that. That's you should be. Just for me. Like, that's Absolutely. just about me. Yeah. Feel good. Feel good. You're yeah. going to have a ton of people reading your book after they listen to this. And then do you work with people individually? Yeah, I do. I, all across the world. If they don't live here, I have an office here in Phoenix. If they don't live here, then, you know, I use Zoom. I also have private groups. I have an old online university of classes. Amazing. That walk people through the recovery process. I give, I give out more than I charge for. I have tons of free downloads and everything because I know there are people in, that truly can't afford it. Sadly, most can, but they're not ready for recovery. And that's okay. Well, this has been amazing. I'm definitely going to have you back on. I would love, love to have Mike on. And actually, you know what would be so fucking cool is if I interviewed both of you guys together to talk about your... That would be so fucking fascinating, actually. That would probably get Mike on. That would be so fun. <laughs>